Hi, welcome to podcast number 42, brought to you by Help with Parkinson's, a nonprofit corporation. Our guest today is Dr. Subramanian, movement disorder specialist at Hershey Medical Center in Hershey, Pennsylvania. And I'm your host, Warren Butfinick. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Sue. Thank you, Warren, again. Thanks for calling me onto the show. Sure, thanks for coming. Okay, today we have a, a repeat of something we've done before, but it uh, seems it's important for people to know about this, so we're going to repeat it. It's something that affects one-third of Parkinson's patients, at least one-third, the freezing of gait, or FOG. And uh, some question is, is it related to more severe disease? Sometimes when you look at the literature, they see people that are freezing a gait. It's a sign of, of the, having a more severe disease. What's your opinion on that, Dr. Sue? Um, so it's not really severity of disease. Uh, we, we haven't really um, found that to be the case. Uh, some people get it and some people don't get it. It's not clear why some people get it more and some, some patients don't have that. Um, this is an area of serious investigation. People are looking into genetic causes, looking at um, the degree of dopamine loss and so on and so forth. One thing is clear is that if uh, patients undergo testing of their dopamine levels in their brain using something called a SPECT scan, uh, this is a dopamine transporter scan, um, and that's been done in a very large study, and people have looked into it. If that's looked into, and you follow the patient along for 10, 15 years, people who have larger degree of dopamine deficiency at the time of diagnoses seem to have a higher risk for freezing of gait. So in other words, at the time you come down with the diagnosis of Parkinson's disease, if you already lost sufficient neurons and the neuronal loss is higher than most other people, then your risk of developing freezing of gait is higher. Um, in other words, it's trying to say that um, a more severe form of the disease at onset, at the time when you came in to the diagnosis, is probably put you at a higher risk. So it's an indirect way of saying what you had stated, but it's not quite a direct correlate. In other words, um, if you were if you're diagnosed with lower degrees of dopamine loss, and it took you ten years to get to that number, you're not at higher risk for developing freezing of gait. It's just that when you get your loss of dopamine is what makes the difference. I hope it's not confusing what I said. That makes sense. So basically you're healthy and then you had an accelerated time frame of diagnosis where a lot of people with standard Parkinson's disease say they sense they've had it for 10 years mm -hmm. before they even gone in for help. Yes. That makes right. sense. Right. That's exactly right. So, yeah. Good. You know, I have something kind of interesting that I haven't really told anybody, mm -hmm. but, uh, about nine years before I was diagnosed, I had an episode or two of freezing. I was just shopping with my, my kids. They were like 10 or 11 years old. So I wasn't really under any stress or anything. It's, um, but I, I, my feet stuck to the floor. I had no idea what that was at the time. And is that, have you ever seen that where somebody has a, an episode years, years before? That's unusual. Most freezing of gait happens after the diagnosis. Um, it would be rather strange to develop freezing of gait early, very early in the disease, um, prior to even coming down with tremor, etc. 
But this may be a good segue to talk about the different forms of freezing of gate. What are the different forms of it? Good. And what exactly is freezing of gate? So freezing of gate can be divided into uh, many different subforms. One common example that most people experience uh, is the one in which you're walking along and suddenly in the middle of walking, you get stuck and can't move anymore. And it takes several seconds and after several seconds, you're able to move again. Uh, this is one form where you become stationary, frozen, your legs seem to be stuck to the floor and can't move. That's one example. A second form is sometimes called festination. In this form, you take short steps and the steps become shorter and shorter and shorter. Eventually, you are propelling forward, but now you can't move anymore your legs. So your legs are stuck, but your body is moving forward. And this festination can frequently result in falls. That's another form of freezing. The next one is uh, difficulty in great initiation. So this is where if you are um, in a deep seat, for example, and watching television for an hour or two, and then at the end of the hour or two, um, your spouse calls you for dinner, and then you have considerable difficulty getting out and moving, um, and it's a, it's a form of gate initiation, difficulty in initiating gate. Uh, now, once you are initiated, once somebody helps you to get out of the chair, uh, then it's okay, then everything is fine. So sometimes it's called a gate block, a motor block, or otherwise called blocking of gate. Uh, that's another form of freezing of gate. And then there's another form, uh, which is unusual but not unheard of. And this form of uh, freezing occurs when uh, somebody has exhausted their dopamine levels. And an example would be when somebody does a lot of exercise, you know, physical exercise, and they exhaust the amount of dopamine that they had. So uh, a good example would be uh, if you did exercise early in the morning, and most people don't take medicines, they practice of medicine uh, late in the night, and in the morning, um, they feel energized because they have slept through the night and they feel like they have empowered to move, but realize that most Parkinson patients have lower amount of dopamine available in their reserve, and they have just taken their first dose of medicine, or they haven't taken it at all. And then if you do vigorous exercise, what happens is that you use up any little dopamine that you already have. Now what happens is you seem to be doing really well. You had moved well, did your exercise and everything. And then if you sat down for a minute to take rest, then you can't move anymore. And then it takes a long time for you to gate initiate. So this is another form of um, freezing that happens post-exercise. So it's sometimes called post-exercise freezing of gait or post-physical therapy or post-physical activity uh, freezing of gait. That's another form. And then there's this last form, which is also pretty common, but um, sometimes it's easy to overcome, is visually directed uh, or visual obstruction form of uh, freezing. The commonest example is when you come to a doorway or when you come to a narrow corridor or if you have a, um, 
very smooth and long passageway with no patterns, lack of patterns. So the visual input being somehow disruptive to your gait pattern. So this is another form of freezing of gait. All these forms are, um, can be again subclassified into, into two, two different categories. One is dopamine responsive freezing of gait, and the other one is non-dopamine freezing, dopamine responsive freezing of gait. So some respond to dopamine, some don't respond to dopamine. So um, that kind of gives you the classification of freezing of gait. Um, and I'll pause there, and I'm sure uh, Warren has more questions. Yeah, so I think you answered my big question that I had. This is, I, like I told you, I talked to you a little bit before about my freezing. It's, uh, I think it's when I wake up early in the morning and I do some strenuous activity, either fixing something under the car or plumbing or something or computer work. And I think I run out of dopamine because I take my pill at 6 a.m., but I may be at 5.30, quarter after 5, 5.30, working on something strenuously and then take my pill. And I think I deplete my dopamine. Right. I think that's, that's exactly what it is. And, and also the part about stopping for a second, if I'm on my, on my computer and then I take a seat because my legs start to get tired, get up. I freeze. Right. That's exactly what, uh, so maybe other people have the same thing I have that never really talk to their doctor about it. Right. And so um, the question then comes, why do you have these symptoms in Parkinson's disease? Why do you get freezing of gait? Uh, what is the theory behind uh, freezing of gait? How, how, do you, how do you explain this theory? So as we were talking before the show, um, very briefly, I'll try to simplify the, the different theories. There are a lot of theories. None of the theories are proven 100%, but um, there are some theories that actually sort of make sense uh, and needs more research to become finalized. So let's talk a little bit about that. The well, first thing we need to remember is how do we as humans learn to walk? Um, as babies, uh, we first usually crawl, although some babies skip the crawling part and go straight to walking. But uh, I'm sure people have watched kids, uh, babies walking. Uh, babies typically fall a lot. Um, they also stumble a lot. And uh, it takes a while for the baby to actually learn how to make a sure step without stumbling. And during this process of learning to walk, the human actually uh, learns it using a variety of different tools. Uh, first and foremost, if your vision is intact, so the baby is not blind or blindfolded or somehow vision is not impaired, the baby frequently looks at its legs and where the foot is going. So this is one way in which we learn to walk is to get visual information about our foot. Of course, the body also has other tools to help us walk which include what we call proprioception, which is our sensation of how, where our legs are in space and time, which is sent to our brain via a variety of different tools. Um, this includes sensation from the bottom of the feet, sensation from the various joints, sensation from the skin, as well as um, vestibular information, information in, from the inner ear telling us where we are in, in, in space. Finally, um, center of gravity information, information about where our body's center of gravity so that 
we have a good balance between the two legs is also transmitted to the brain. Now, all of this information is, is um, integrated, meaning all this information has come together in one space, which is called gait pattern generation. And this controls rhythmicity of gait, coordination of gait, symmetry of gait, and balance when you're turning, etc. Now, if you think about it, after the baby has learned how to walk uh, and is steadily walking, soon enough, the baby actually no longer looks at the legs when, it's, when the baby is walking. The baby is looking at other things around the surroundings, um, trying to catch other people or you know, play tag or uh, doing other things while they're walking. Now, how does that happen? Once the baby learns how to walk and the pattern generation is integrated, we put away our sequence of how to walk in part of the brain, which is called executive functional brain, usually in the frontal lobe, in the front of the brain. So we put away information in sequences. In other words, whenever you're walking, your brain does the thinking for you and you don't have to think deliberately how you have to walk. Now you can test yourself doing this. If you blindfold yourself and try to walk, you find that you're initially having some difficulty because you're used to using visual information to know some things. Now, if you blindfold and also wear shoes that doesn't allow sensitive information from the foot to get to the brain, then it becomes even harder to walk. And a good example of this is when you're walking in the night when there is not enough light, then you really become a little bit ataxic, a little bit um, unsteady. And that's because your central uh, gait generation, pattern generation, uh, is now not working at its best. This is exactly what happens in Parkinson's disease, is that what you've already programmed in your brain is no longer executable. The way in which your body has already learned, your brain has already learned to execute um, patterns of walking, uh, specifically what your stride length should be, each step, how far it should be, where should your foot go in order for you to maintain your balance, and how well you should move. All of those things are uh, stored in your brain, and that stored information is not executable anymore. Now, the next question is, why is it not executable? What, what, what happens in Parkinson's that prevents you from executing a previously gained pattern? This has to do with dopamine deficiency, or at least we think it's related to dopamine deficiency. Um, the part of the brain, which we call the basal ganglia, which is involved in Parkinson's disease, allows us to integrate uh, visual information and other types of pattern generation with our gait patterns. And when there is a disruption, then we're no longer able to you know, use our pre-learned gait patterns to move. It's a um, very oversimplified version of what uh, theories are, but it's a good way to remember what may be the reason for freezing of gait. Um, there are many other theories. Uh, I won't go through all of them in great detail, but suffice to say, uh, some of the theories, the central drive theory, where the drive for us to move is disturbed uh, with the automaticity of gait. In other words, uh, if there is a lack of drive, or momentum to, to walk in a smooth manner, that's been um, theorized as a possibility. Another one is that there's a mismatch of 
uh, anticipated postural ad adjustment and step initiation. So in other words, when you're trying to get up from a chair and move, um, you do a little bit of planning. And when there is a mismatch between what you plan to do and what you're able to do, that leads to freezing. So that's a mismatch theory when two things are not um, going as, as you expect it to go. And then the last but not the least are, uh, is the idea of perceptual dysfunction. Perception is our sense of where we are in space. And uh, the, the classic example is that if you make a hologram of a doorway, Parkinson patients will have difficulty going through the hologram, even though they know that the hologram is a fake one and that there's really no doorway there. It's not a physical doorway, but it's just a perception that there is something there. Or even if you draw a, a, a little shape of a doorway on the floor, like you see sometimes in the mall, you have you know, a projection of, a, of, a, of an image on the floor. That in itself will actually block movement and cause you to freeze. So um, this theory then suggests that it's all about visual information, that visual information is actually what interferes with walking. So all these theories are interesting. None of them are proven. None of them are, you know, God's word or finalized. But um, it's a good way to think about freezing of gait and see how we can help patients overcome them. Yes, sounds good. So, um, so it's, it's still very much unknown. It's just people are trying to come up with actual reasons why this happens. But the only thing we know is that it does happen. Yes. And we know that people have lack, lack of dopamines, but that's hasn't been totally done. It's not totally attributed to the dopamine. It could be something close to the dopamine in the brain, I would assume. Yes. So, yes, that's right. I mean, it's not a 100% um, shown that it's all related to dopamine, but there is at least some evidence that the dopamine plays a role. And, and the way we know that is, so, as I already mentioned, some freezing of great gait is levodopa responsive. Um, not all are. Some are. And those that are um, do respond to dopamine. And how do we know that? Um, there are several treatments that actually allow you to give levodopa quickly. One example is the epimorphine injections. Uh, another one is the recently approved inhaler, a coda uh, therapy, which allows you to inhale levodopa. These uh, therapies have been shown to unfreeze people. Now, again, it's not practical that you're walking in the middle of something and then suddenly you freeze. You're not about to take an injectable syringe and then inject yourself with medicine. But on the other hand, if you are seated in a chair and you have gait initiation block, um, for example, you go on a long drive in a, in, a, in a car and you've been sitting in the car for two hours, at the end of the uh, two hours, you have difficulty coming out of the car. It's not unreasonable to get yourself an injection or take an inhaler and inhale, wait for five minutes or so, and then get out of the chair. Or you're in the movie, movie theaters and you're watching movie, and at the end of the show, um, you sit in the chair for another two minutes or so, take your, your epimorphine injection or take your uh, inhaled uh, levodopa, and then that unblocks you so that you can have great initi gate initiation can be done. Those are practical um, levodopa responsive type of um, treatments that can be used to unfreeze. But again, that's a very selective way of unfreezing. If you're freezing for while you're walking, it's not very practical to use this treatment. 
finally, there's also data from the Duopa study. So Duopa is where you deliver medicine, the levodopa, fibidopa, via a pump into your jejunum, into your stomach. That allows you continuous levodopa therapy. There is evidence that people who freeze, if you do Duopa, indeed, um, they freeze less. So suggesting that uh, levodopa, uh, when it's delivered continuously, may actually um, unfreeze people or prevent them from freezing. So this is an example of where uh, some forms of freezing of gait can be helped with dopamine. Now, there are others that are resistant to uh, levodopa. And in that case, uh, you may have to try other things, including physical cueing, which we have talked about before. And many physical techniques to to cue, there is a laser boots, laser pointer, laser um, walking stick, uh, laser walker. All of those things give you visual uh, lines or patterns on the floor that allows you to overcome them. You can also carry a metronome in your pocket and turn the metronome on, which gives you uh, sound patterns that allows you to overcome freezing that gate. Or simply looking away from uh, the visual field. So you're walking straight and looking to your side or distracting yourself to uh, one side or the other is a way to uh, unblock your freezing. Uh, some people try counting backwards or counting forwards. Um, people have tried jumping. Um, I just went to the American Academy of Neurology meeting and there was a poster about jumping to unfreeze and people have tried taking short jumps to overcome. Uh, jumping is not practical if you're fascinating. So if you're at risk of falling and you're taking short steps and you're you know, running forward and your tendency to fall, then of course you, you can't jump. But we're talking about people who are physically strong and can actually jump when they are struck and they have freezing of gait, which does not involve fascination. In that case, jumping actually might help. Turning or attempting to turn to one side or the other is another trick that some people do, but again, it's dangerous because if your leg is stuck to the ground and you try to turn, you can sometimes fall, especially if you don't have a walking stick or something in your hand to give you a third point to pivot yourself, then you might actually fall. So the last few tricks where attempting to turn the body or jumping is not something you should attempt if you don't have a walker or a walking stick in your hand or somebody by your side who catch you when you're um, trying to do this. The other tricks, though, the metronome and the laser light or laser pointer or the laser boot, they're all reasonable things to try um, when you are physical methods to unfreeze yourself. Uh, last but not the least is the use of deep brain stimulation. Um, there has been attempts to do deep brain stimulation in a part of the brain called the PPN, pedunculopontine nucleus, PPN. Um, that has been partially successful. Some people, they have found that PPN, uh, DBS was helpful. But a large trial that looked at um, uh, PPN stimulation actually failed. Uh, it did not help freezing of gait, had more complications. So um, that's not for everybody, but in selected cases where freezing does not respond to dopamine, does not uh, respond to cueing, may want to consider that kind of a surgery. Um, but it's, uh, it's not for everybody. Hmm. Yeah, when I, when I tried a metronome, for my cell phone, when the freezing is very mild, I just need to have the metronome in the background. I don't need to be in any rhythm with it. But if the freezing is worse, then I have to hesitate getting the rhythm of the metronome, and then it works for me that way. And I also use a laser pointer, but a laser pointer doesn't help outside when it's daylight. Right. 
because it, it's a, just a red light you can't see. So right. you, you really need both, metronome and a laser pointer. So there are, there's this thing called the laser boot now. Um, again, that's uh, something newer, that the laser boot allows you to um, get a vibratory sensation under the foot as well as uh, laser light that you can turn on. Um, and that comes on every time. And it's pretty bright. It's green light. Um, and the green light shows up during the daytime as well because the laser okay, is pretty, pretty strong. Um, and that's been used by um, several investigators. And it's not one laser. Actually, it has more than one laser and the laser boot. Um, and you can turn on more than one laser. So you can have two lasers, three lasers. You can have up to seven lasers on the bottom of the boot that allows you to, to use it. You can have seven on each side. So you can actually use a whole pattern uh, to create pattern generation to, to use the boot. It is expensive. It's not easily available either. But for those who want to try it, that's another option to, to think about, you know, trying to make a boot, yeah. There's a, there's a spot in my house that has three doorways around the corner. It's an older house. Mm-hmm. I've even started running or walking really fast to get to that part of the house. And it's every day, as soon as I hit that spot, it's like somebody's pulling me back and, and – um, I just sort of end up stopping in the same spot, no matter how fast I go. Mm. It's like mm. kind of an odd feeling when uh, you know it's your own house and you keep you keep trying, but it's just something you can't do. But I'm going to try that looking away thing you were talking about. Right. The other thing you could do in your house, if you have such places, is to try to do um, adaptive um, changes. So, for example, you could put mirrors on the other side of the corridor that while you're walking, you actually look at the mirror and can see yourself walking. And that allows you to give a visual cue that you normally don't have. So instead of looking at the doorway, you can look straight and you can see yourself walking. So you can see your own visual image, you can see your legs. So that might actually disrupt the idea of the doorway. That's good idea. The other thing you can do, which um, I've had some people do, is to put reflectors on the side of the um, doorway, and the reflectors actually make it look like the doorway is bigger. And there are many, many such reflectors. Um, you can go to one of the hardware stores like Lowe's or Home Depot or someplace and then look for these type of reflectors. They, they give you a visual sensation that something small is actually big. Um, and there are many ways of doing it. Um, some of them are little um, strips that you put on the side of the doorway. The other ones are, you know, like um, the things that you glue on the wall, um, stuff like that. You can try those things. There's also the idea that you can buy some glasses which have prisms on it. And these uh, prism glasses actually allow you to uh, have a bigger visual field. And uh, they, they, they are available um, uh, online. You can order them and you can so, sort of trick glasses. You wear these glasses and it allows you to see things bigger or wider. Uh, it's sort of like a little magnifying lens, so to speak, but they are prisms. So everything will be a little bit bigger, slightly bigger. So it makes you look like you're not going through a narrow space. Mm-hmm. Again, it's not practical because you don't want to wear this all the time. You only want it when you're going through a doorway or whatever. But if you know in a certain part of your house you have this problem all the time, you could wear them just when you're going through there. Like you could 
you wear it around your neck and when you get getting there, it's like, okay, I'm freezing now, let me just put it on. You put it on, go through that place and then take it off, you know? So uh, for that type of situation, you can actually do it, so. Hmm. Interesting. And and what, what I was talking about with myself is a perfect example of why you need to go to a specialist about uh, problems with Parkinson's because I think my problem was dopamine depletion because I was doing a lot of heavy work before I took my first dose in the morning because I had a lot of work to do that week. And, um, and if the doctor didn't catch up on that, he would have increased my dose and it would have had the uh, dyskinesia. Yes, that's right. I mean, I, no reason. Yes, I agree. So I think we, we've covered this in many other podcasts, but I think it's worth emphasizing that uh, strenuous early morning exercise is not the greatest thing to do in Parkinson's disease. And this might be counterintuitive because most people like the idea of doing exercise early in the morning. Uh, they feel that after a good night's sleep and you've, you're refreshed and this is the best time to do exercise. And largely, uh, many of our exercise places, uh, YMCA's or gyms, they all offer early morning exercise classes. And people feel refreshed when they go do an exercise and then take a shower and then get ready to go. And we are habituated to it for many different reasons. However, in Parkinson's disease, that's not the case. And uh, it's worth emphasizing it here that Parkinson's disease, you already lost 50% of your dopaminergic neurons by the time your diagnosis is made. So your energy reserve for dopamine is already 50% down. It is true that when you sleep overnight, you do conserve some of your dopamine and restock your dopamine for the day. But remember, your restock dopamine is still 50% down. So you only have half the reserve that normal people have. So if you do strenuous exercise in the morning, whatever little you made in the night, you're going to exhaust that too because now you're entirely dependent on exogenous dopamine, medicine-derived medicine dopamine that you're giving throughout the day. So you become more vulnerable for the medicine to fail throughout the day if you do strenuous exercise in the morning. Now instead, if you do less strenuous exercise, like mild stretching, maybe a little bit of yoga or meditation in the morning, and then reserve for your more physically active things later in the day, uh, perhaps late afternoon when you have the highest amount of exogenous and endogenous dopamine, that may be actually a good time to use up your dopamine because your risk of dyskinesia, side effects from accumulating levels of dopamine is highest. So now if you go do exercise, you actually allow your dopamine levels to become more moderate without being too excessive. So your dyskinesia will actually get better if you do that later in the afternoon. So uh, strategic repositioning of your exercise and your strenuous activity will actually help you uh, reduce your freezing of gait and reduce other complications of therapy. Right. It's a uh, way to explain it. It's, it's like a chart that goes from the bottom to the top, A, B, C, D, E, F, G. And the bottom to the left to the right goes 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. And if you start with no dopamine in the morning, take your first pill, you'll be all the way at the bottom and your, your, the line won't get halfway up. But if you have dopamine from the night before and you don't use it, then you're starting halfway up and then you reach the, the steady state of exactly where you want to be. So you have no chance of getting to that steady state of comfort 
if you start out with, with less than you should. So does, does that make sense, Dr. Sue? Yeah, I think you kind of said it in a different way, but I think that's a good way to think about it. Um, but I think the, the, the key point that we want listeners to get is that uh, doing strenuous exercise first thing in the morning is not the best thing for Parkinson patients. Uh, I think uh, this is worth emphasizing again and again that uh, morning is a time where you want to take it a little bit easy. Uh, doesn't mean that you should get in the bed and sleep. Uh, that's not what I mean. You should be active and you should be moving around, but don't do strenuous physical activity or exercise first thing in the morning. Wait until your second or third dose of medicine. If you're taking carbidopa, levodopa, um, wait until your first pill is in and the second pill is in. By the time your third pill is in, that's when you probably are in your best shape. Um, the fourth pill is later in the afternoon, early evening. But most people don't want to do exercise at 7, 8 o'clock in the evening. Although that's not a bad idea either. You still have a decent amount of dopamine in your body. Of course, if you do a very strenuous exercise, um, 7, 8 o'clock in the evening, that also exhausts the amount of dopamine that you have at nighttime when you go to sleep. So you don't want to do that either. So uh, in my opinion, the best time is an hour, hour after your third dose of carbidopa levodopa. Um, and perhaps if you don't have the time to do it after the third dose, maybe an hour after your fourth dose of carbidopalavadopa would be a right time to do strenuous, full-blown full exercise where you're really sweating bullets, um, whether it's running, jumping, you know, boxing or uh, weightlifting or doing bench press or whatever. Whatever physical activity that you decide to do, doing in a strenuous fashion should probably be reserved for that time. Good. Yeah, I think we... we... Hopefully we touched a lot of people today with this because there may be people out there that are depleting their dopamine and don't know it, and they just think their disease is getting worse. Yep. Very well. Thank you, uh, Warren, for having a nice uh, conversation about freezing of gait, and we hope our listeners uh, give us feedback about this. Good. Thank you. Yeah, bye. Bye.